Addiction plays hardball. He would hit me with these verbal attacks. I just said to him, I love you so much. You're such an amazing person. I can't take this ride anymore. It was the fact that dad made that sentiment and broke down. And years later, he told me it had a huge impact on him. Sometimes doing what's right for your loved one is the hardest thing to do. Karen is that right thing. Visit CARON.org slash lost. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader, like that car riding right your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader. To get the Crime Writers on After Show right now, go to patreon.com slash partners in crime media. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is Crime Writers On. Crime Writers On is the original true crime review podcast that digs into true crime, pop culture, other podcasts. And this week, we knew 9-11 would change our world. But what were those changes? Dan Taberski examines that question in the new podcast, 9-12. Then, is it a billion-dollar clothing company empowering entrepreneurial women, or is it a pyramid scheme? We'll review the documentary, Lula Rich from Prime. Joining me to get that done and more is true crime author, TV journalist, and host of the These Are Their Stories podcast, my husband and love of my life, Kevin Flynn. Hello, Kevin. Forgot entrepreneurial woman. (laughs) I think about you that way all the time, Kevin. (laughs) Also with us is author, private investigator, certified pet detective, resident cat lady, and author of Dead on Deadline, Lara Bricker. Hello, Lara. Hello, and we can add 80s Brat Pack Stalker to that list, but we'll talk about that in the after show. We sure will. And finally, our captain of woke cynicism, the author of the City Trilogy of Novels, the host of the Strange Arrivals podcast on iHeart, and our Patreon Deep Dive Book Club podcast host, Toby Ball. Good evening, Toby. Hey, Rebecca. So we do have a lot to talk about uh, tonight, but last week on the podcast, you made a wish, and that wish was... <laughs> if Steve Martin followed me on Twitter, that would like make my year. You die. Uh, you yeah, die, right? Since, I die. Since I was like uh, eight years old, I've been a huge Steve Martin fan. Had all the uh, LPs, Comedy is Not Pretty, Wild and Crazy Guy. So Steve, Steve Martin, Martin, if you're listening to this true crime podcast, please follow Toby Ball. <laughs> I've never Toby asked Ball for NH. Toby, what happened? Uh, before the uh, podcast even hit, Steve Martin followed me on Twitter. Wow. Perhaps because of a tweet that you put out that had us both in it. But um, yeah, so I don't know. You throw it out in the universe, it comes back at you. That is the idea, yes. <laughs> yeah, my, my Twitter goals have now been completely satisfied, so I could quit any day happy. So who else do you want, Toby? Is there anyone else in the world that you want, like LeBron James or anyone else like that? No. Steve Martin was really the only one. I mean, I like I said before, like I've been a fan of his 
since I was a fan of anything other than like maybe Gordon from Sesame Street. Mm. So like it's just it's the culmination of 48 years of fandom. Mm. Um, so anyway, yeah, I can die happy now. That's- Have you improved the quality of your Twitter to reflect the <laughs> gravitas of your uh, it's, followers? It's now? intimidated me. Uh, I did put out a picture of him, the uh, banjo side of the Steve Martin Brothers album, which mm-hmm. got a lot of, wow, Steve Martin was really hot back then, uh, responses on Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, Not his fault that he was hot, by the way. I should also tweet the other side, which is him in full lounge lizard mode, which is also pretty <laughs> funny. So anyway, yeah. So that was awesome. Very excited. What is your next life goal that perhaps we could put out into the world and make happen for you? Not on Twitter, but just like literally anything else. My next life goal? Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Laura, Steve Martin did not follow either you or I. <laughs> no, no. I didn't get followed by Steve Martin. I mean, I've got like some more cat people following me, I think. Well, there you but go. People that like, you know, beer and scones. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I don't know. No Steve Martin. I mean, I have Carol Baskin. That's true. That's true. The Steve Martin of big cats. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I will say, though, neither one of you expressed that that was your deepest desire, as Toby did. No. Correct? No. No, I just wasn't nearly as thirsty as you guys. <laughs> I mean, yes, I would like it. I would like to think that Steve Martin likes me, too. Mm. Like I like Steve Martin. But that's okay, Steve Martin. <laughs> you don't have to follow me on Twitter. You know, I'll keep saying nice things about your show, even though you obviously based your your character on me. Uh <laughs> Did Why he? are you laughing? <laughs> uh, before, <laughs> Did he? Seventy-year-old bachelor. Old. Oh my god! <laughs> Who has a thing for bassoonists? So Martin Short was based on me. Is that the? Uh, is that what we're? I, I, no, is that I think how that's this is Laura, breaking down. Actually. <laughs> yeah. With the little dog. I don't know. I mean, my uncle Wall looks just like Steve Martin. So. Mm. I mean, if you want to come over and take some pictures with him at Christmas, if he's able to get here this year, we could make that happen. I'm pretty sure Selena Gomez's character was based on Toby to be able to Oh, jeez. <laughs> <laughs> She's super dry, after all. All right. Well, I think we should just get the show started. What do you guys think? It's that time. Leading off. When did you start to think about where's my brother? Immediately. Because I knew that. Damn. I mean, he frequented the World Trade Center and the surrounding areas, you know, like he could have got caught up in that. The memories of what happened on September 11th are burned clearly in our minds. But what happened in the weeks, months and years afterward are often kind of fuzzy. The post 9-11 world was filled with not just security changes, but cultural changes as well. This hope that if the disaster is big enough, if the tragedy is big enough, we will snap out of it. Whatever it is for each of us, we will snap out of it. Host Dan Taberski goes beyond the usual annual retrospectives and looks at how 9-11 stopped being a day and became an idea and how that idea influenced the way Americans deal with fear, with humor, with extremism and with freedom. In the name of freedom, we restrict freedoms. In the name of America, we go after Americans. And then, in the name of a war on terror, we begin to terrorize our own. 
In the new seven-part podcast, 912 from Pineapple Street Studios, Wondery, and Amazon Music, Taberski employs his unique brand of curiosity, conversation, and soft cynicism to explore the slow creep of change the terror attacks brought. He navigates the emotionally and politically charged waters of 9-11 to illustrate the ways our lives changed that we didn't even notice. Programming note, episodes of 9-12 are being released weekly on podcast platforms, but you can binge the entire series on Wondery Plus and on Amazon Music, which may already be included in your Amazon Prime subscription or which you may be able to get through a free trial. Or... Which your teenager may have actually subscribed to and you never knew until you went to go look it up. (laughs) Now we are going to be talking about plot points from 912. So if you want to remain spoiler free, go to the estimated time code in our show notes for our thumbs up or thumbs down review. So Toby... Really, this whole thing, I went into it not knowing what it was going to be because with Dan Taberski, everything is surprising. And all of these seven episodes are quite different. Like I would say the first two are very different than maybe like the next five. But what do you think this is really about? Is it about 9-11? Is it about our culture? Is it about politics? Like, do you have a unifying theory of what this is about? I think, I mean, I think it's about how do we engage with our idea of 9-11. 9-11, it's sort of, it's taken on a greater life, I think, than just the fact of the attacks. Like there's this sort of mythology that's built up around it about how it brought, you know, America together. And, you know, we've never been more American than we were then and all this stuff. And so I, I think that's what he wants to examine is like, how did we think about it at the time? How do we think about it now? How should we be thinking about it as we come up to the 20th anniversary? And I think, you know, the way he goes about it, which reminded me a little bit of the way Leon Nafak did the first season of Slow Burn is to kind of take a look at these aspects of the whole without looking at the big, like he doesn't get into the war in Afghanistan or some of these bigger social things. He tells stories kind of around the edges that sort of build up this picture of the way we have or we might, uh, you know, I keep saying engage or make sense of what what 9-11 really means now. Hmm. Now, Lara, I don't know about you, but I'm one of these people that every year around this time of year, I kind of dread like the annual journalistic 9-11 remembrances. Like, I'm one of these people, mm-hmm. like, I hate hearing, like, everyone tell their stories about where they were, what they were doing. I mean, unless it was somebody who was actually involved directly. Like, it just feels to me very, like, ugh, like exhausting, difficult, trying. Um, and, you know, I wasn't exactly, like, when I heard what that's generally what this is about, like, psyched to press play, mm-hmm. except for the fact that it was a Dan Taberski podcast. How did you approach this? Because I know that you also, working in journalism, like there's kind of a, a sense of sort of dread around this topic generally, right? I don't know if I have dread. I do think, I mean, every year I'm like, oh my gosh, because it's like, I mean, I don't know about you guys, but it's like so clear. Like when you think like, what was I doing 10 years ago? And you'll remember like one thing. I remember like everything I was doing that day. Um, this was, I mean, and so I always, you know, I'll remember this because there was this monkey that was loose in this town around us, the Danville monkey. 
and people had been trying <laughs> well, to track this. How did Taberski miss this? Exactly. <laughs> oh my God, Dan Taberski, man, he should have consulted with me. I mean, he had a dude from New Hampshire in there. So this Danville monkey was like on the run and all of the Boston media were up in New Hampshire and my friend Jason Schreiber and I were out like following some guy around in a monkey suit who was trying to capture the monkey. There was a little kid leaving peanut butter cookies. So the morning of September 11th, the Today Show, Katie Couric and Matt Lauer were supposed to be broadcasting live from Danville, New Hampshire about this damn monkey. And so I was like, I was still in bed because like when you worked in a newsroom, I worked like I'd go in late in the morning and I'd work late at night. And I was sitting in bed and my friend and I were on the phone and all of a sudden it flipped to the towers and she's like, oh my God, Laura, you need to go fill up your car with gas right now, immediately. We're under attack. And I was like, oh my God, oh my God. But she had lived through different periods in time. So I always remember, you know, having to jump into that as a reporter. But I mean, I think because of that, I felt like I already had a pretty good grasp of what it was like. So I was like, what more can Dan Taberski say? And then I'm like, oh, Dan Taberski, he's going to bring out these guys in the boat in the middle of the ocean. I mean, that was a great intro. And I think, Kevin, you really like that too, right? Yeah, because, I, I mean, in general, you're right, over 20 years we have heard a lot of the same angles, and that's not to minimize anybody's experience who was there, but the obvious thing to do would be to go talk to some firefighters and, you know, some grunts that were on the front line in, in Kabul and stuff like that, and it takes a completely different turn, but with ways that are both interesting and meaningful, and so I thought the idea of telling the story of these guys who were at sea and essentially cut off from the world, and who heard about it and then heard nothing more about it. But we couldn't. We, you can't. You can't imagine it. It was the day the world changed, and yet we couldn't see it. And 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 other than in, through our mind's eye, I thought it was so you know a really fascinating take and a great way to open it, because what does it pose? And Rebecca, I think you said this to me. It creates two different worlds: the world where you do know about it in the world where you don't know about it, and which would you rather go to? Which would you choose? Which would you choose to go yeah. to? I, I I can't stop thinking about that. Like, I mean, there have been very, very difficult moments in my life, particularly in the last couple of years. And if I were given the choice, like, your life is going to change forever tomorrow, and things will never be the same, you can delay that by eight months and keep doing what you're doing and not have to face it or your life will be completely different and worse starting tomorrow like which would you choose like who wouldn't choose choice a right right and this is like the uh the genius of dan taberski i'm just going to throw it out there it's to decide to find stories and then present them in compelling ways that are a little off topic but aren't this is the closest thing to surviving y2k that he's done right takes an important event and then ends up telling the stories on the periphery of it which illustrate the thing at the center and so he does this in all different ways and also in sort of just kind of each episode focuses on a different thing instead of something focusing on rebuilding new york and something on the geopolitical space and whatnot something is about humor and something is about the you know, freedom and something about remembrance. And it just does... Radicalization. Extremism. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So it just is a really fantastic and new way of looking at something that, you know, speaks to his central thesis, which is that 9-11 is not a day. 9-11 is 
an idea, or it is, as the New York Times pointed out recently, it's an era. Yeah. You know, and so to look at it that way. Now, Toby, I thought some of the most provocative parts of the podcast, and I see in your notes you felt the same way, like episode one was obviously with with the ship situation and sort of the way that that went. It felt very much like, all right, this podcast is going to be not light, but like, you know, different, right? Like it's not going to just get at the heart of all the most difficult things about about this. Episode two really begins with this sort of, you know, lighter take talking about the onion trying to put out you know, their first edition after 9-11, trying to figure out a way to be both funny, cynical, is this the death of cynicism, and also maybe earnest joining this patriotic moment. And then halfway through that episode, it takes this, to me, incredible turn into this George Carlin section and this incredible tape of his performance on September 10th about how he kind of likes it when a lot of people die. Would you want me to tell you about something I really, really like? Huh? Fatal disasters. Big fatal disasters with lots of dead people. Because I kind of like it when a lot of people die. Some people like macrame. Some people like doing the mambo. Me, I like a nice train wreck. Toby, what do you think about how Dan Taberski approaches not just that episode, but so many of these stories with kind of the honesty about the darkest parts of our humor and how we use humor to face tragedies like this. I mean, I think it took it took a lot of guts for him to just make this series because nine eleven, I think, is just sort of the sacred thing now in the U.S. And he he's pushing the boundaries on some of the things that he, that he talks about. Not necessarily him, but he's he's talking to people who push the boundaries. And so I think, in some ways, sort of the most provocative things he puts on here is about sort of humor and then empathy for, you know, the quote-unquote enemy in this situation, which is some of the stuff I found most compelling. I'll be honest with the George Carlin thing, you know, it was provocative. I didn't come away feeling that much better about George Carlin when it was over. Like, mm. I didn't feel like in the end, you know, obviously hindsight is in this case like – changes the entire meaning of what he was talking about. But it, I didn't feel like his his little dialogue gave me any deeper understanding of 9-11. I'm curious about what you thought about what Dan said about it, though, because that was the part that really struck me, because Dan admitted, and this to me was the gutsy part, because George Carlin's thing was a bit, right? And then Dan admitted that that day, I mean, he had a friend who died in the Twin Towers. He was in downtown New York City. The tragedy was right on his front door. And he admitted the thing that no one ever says out loud, that the tragedy becomes less exciting when you think that 20,000 people died. And then you hear it's maybe 15 and then it's maybe 10 and then it's five and then it's only, quote, three, because you think something bigger will change if more people die. And then it feels almost like a letdown. That is a fucking brave thing to say, in, in my yeah. opinion. No, 100%. And especially around that. I mean, I think the same thing comes through like when their hurricanes are hitting. Like when that hurricane just hit New Orleans. It's like, is this thing going to be bigger than Katrina? And when it's not, it's like, oh, well, what was the big deal? Yeah. So I thought that. And then I also thought the part where he's talking to those... Um, British people who did the play at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, where it was sort of trying to make a sort of empathetic portrait of Osama bin Laden. Again, I thought that was 
Like, I can't imagine them trying to do that in the U.S. at that time. But just even bringing that up again, I think I think took a lot of courage, and I think it was super interesting. And then then when it turns out that part of Osama bin Laden's monologue, which makes sense for him, is actually from Batman, and is Batman's monologue, it definitely is fodder for thought. Regardless if Osama is killed or survives, the awakening has started. The world is changing, and people are trying to build a better one for their children. You know, I think the episode where he's talking about humor isn't really about humor, even though he's talking with a lot of like comedy writers and stuff like that. It's really about joy. And when do we have the permission to be joyful again in the face of such tragedy? And, you know, I think that is something that can be applied to a discussion beyond 9-11, when there are sad things that happen either within a family or within a community. You know, when do you have permission to be happy about stuff again? And that was, it was, you know, so bad that it seemed like you wouldn't be able to make jokes about anything ever again. And so to confront it and to find a way to be joyful, again, just sort of another unique way of looking at what 9-11 means and what it did. Lara, what did you think about that bin Laden bit? And then also, I'd love to know your thoughts on the idea And the fact, apparently, that the CIA came calling to Hollywood to help them game out terrorism and what future terrorist attacks might look like. Yeah, that was that was pretty bonkers. I'll start with the bin Laden versus Spider-Man. Batman, get it straight, okay? Oh, it was Batman? I thought it was Spider- I like Spider-Man. Anyway, I'm going to add Spider-Man in there. Um, (laughs) But, you know, I think... That, you know, looking back at that time and when you, you know, trying to humanize him and look at him in this different light, I don't think really that many people, if any, had the ability to do that. But I think that was really indicative of just how traumatic an event collectively this was for everybody that lived through it, that it was so awful to have witnessed this and to live through this that we, no matter what you tell us about his horrible childhood and everything else, we're never going to be able to see him as a damaged person or whatever in terms of how he became who he did. But the Hollywood director's thing, that part was kind of my favorite because, you know, I was thinking at first, I'm like, oh, this is stupid. And then I'm like, actually, it might be kind of brilliant because think about it. Think about if you're like a wannabe terrorist guy and you're watching all these like action superhero movies, perhaps, and you're like, you know, what could I do to be, you know, a superhero for my cause? I can see how something that you might think is sort of a fantastical idea that is totally not reality as far as something that's going to happen is is just so far out there. But actually, I mean, who would have ever thought of, you know, coming here, learning how to fly, hijacking planes into the Twin Towers. But I loved the part how they like went there and they're like, okay, it's your meeting. And the guys that hadn't worn suits in like 20 years, I was imagining them still wearing like their Chuck Taylors under (laughs) their suits because they're like, what the fuck is this meeting? But but the fact of how long those meetings went on, I think that was the thing that did sort of surprise me. That wasn't like a one and done. It was a prolonged experiment in a way. The idea for me that some directors were great at it and some sucked at it was great. David Fincher sucked. David Milch was great. Toby, what did you think about that episode? I, I thought it was great. I think that was the strongest of all the episodes. I, I think there was just this interesting... Am I remembering this wrong? My impression was that the CIA had actually given Bush something that said that they're worried that terrorists were going to use planes as weapons and, and that he ignored it. Isn't that correct? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So 
there's like I and I don't know I I mean he didn't really come out and say it but the things I was thinking about are like this weird conceptualization about how things work that you would go to movies to try and get a sense of what the actual reality of what people who might actually be trying to do harm to you are thinking when in you know we've got like this incredible intelligence network that is supposed to be doing just that thing and your answer to it and in, in part, I mean, it's not the only thing that's going on is let's get a bunch of action film guys together in a room and see what they can come up with and see if they... And the director of Grease, by the way. And the director of Grease. <laughs> and he's the guy can choreograph. So yeah, I just thought, I thought there was a lot of sort of interesting things about the way we think about entertainment and its value, even in these sort of extremely tense, dire times when it was not known whether this was going to become a semi-frequent occurrence. And, and people were certainly putting out the idea that it, that it was. So yeah, I thought that was, I mean, there's a, most of the episodes I think are strong. I thought that was the strongest. I, I got done with that. I was like, that, that's a lot. You know, I could listen to that again with a different ear, having listened to it once, and, and I'm sure I'll pull some other stuff out of it. So, Kevin, what do you think about the idea that all these directors were asked to go into um, places of national importance and <laughs> that's that was the craziest part. game out whether or not they could destroy them by putting an orange sticky note in a place to designate yeah. whether or not they could have actually beat the security? Yeah, I just like I had heard the, um, you know, the, the variety headlines. So I knew that that was out there that the government, someone from the government, DOD or CIA, went to you know some Hollywood screenwriters. And you're right, we didn't hear anything more about it, but I just sort of assumed that that happened a couple of times. The idea that it kept going on for years, I was blown away. But then when they get to the part where, okay, now we want you to send you out on a mission on to Washington, I'm like, how is Dick Wolf going to fucking blow up the Smithsonian? Dick Wolf! You know, just like, come on. I started like questioning the uh, veracity of the story when it got to that part, but uh, like Tabersky says... Go ahead, try to fact check that. <laughs> no, he said try to fact check the fact that it went to the fraternity president. The pre- yeah. <laughs> Let's just say that guy knows how to run a fraternity, right? That's what it yeah. is. <laughs> but I, I, I can't imagine a bunch of CIA you know, officers and people who work in all sorts of different kinds of signal intelligence who are like, okay, it's time for our monthly two-hour-long meeting with the guys from Hollywood and have them tell us what possibly the next big bombing's going to be. I can't imagine that they were excited about doing that over and over again. Hmm. I want to talk about the meat of the final episode of this series, which is focused around a young man named Dakota Sawyer who's in high school, and he was holding a telethon, a televised telethon, to raise money for a 9-11 memorial in his Ohio town. So we're back over here at the whiteboard uh, to, you know, kind of go over our goal. We Our goal is $200,000. We've raised $700 of that goal. We need $199,300. Donate now. Now, this is a kid who was not alive during 9-11. And what Dan Taberski is tackling in this episode is this idea of never forget, which is a thing that happens around almost every tragedy. And he's untangling this idea of we should never forget because remembering is important so that we never forget. I think the appeal of never forget is that it actually means forget. Forget everything that isn't our victimhood at that moment. It's absolution. And it works forward in time as well as backward. 
So this is like a lot. I mean, there's a lot of wonderful tape, obviously, of Dakota. I'm a fan of that kid. And Laura, I'm sure you are as well, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's it's interesting. We all have children and we have, you know, teenagers and, and kids that either were very young when this happened or weren't alive when this happened. And so I always do wonder, having such a vivid memory out of it myself, how younger generations are going to talk about this every year. And of course, I asked, like, what did you talk about in school this week? And I was like, oh, nothing. I'm like, okay, whatever. But this kid, Dakota, you know, he's out like fundraising and he's running the telethon and he's like got people, he's got this very interesting enthusiasm. And I loved what Dan said about him. I will take a pound of that sliced thin on the optimism of this kid, which was just like another great like Dan Taberski expression. He has so many in this podcast. I mean, I love when he talks about like getting the wrong color Skittles and, you know, he just <laughs> has such a way of phrasing things. I'm like, oh, yeah, I know what you mean. But it is interesting. And it was also interesting because you have to think about when he heard about the town next door that already had this like one of the beams and they had this like huge memorial already. Like, why is this kid going to such lanes? And I think because if you didn't live through it, you feel like you learned about it in school. You should do something but there is a little bit of a disconnect, I think. Uh, you know, if you are coming in after the fact and, and don't have that same sort of feeling in your gut, like Rebecca was talking about earlier, when it's like September 11th, you're like, oh, here we go again. Like, I mean, it's been in my house this week. Ken's gearing up for the big 20th anniversary and they're having a ceremony. He had to go out and landscape this week to get ready around their flagpole so they could have their anniversary. So I thought it was kind of inspiring to hear somebody that was still in high school going to such lanes. I, you know, a high school kid doing anything that passionately, I think, is is pretty amazing. But it wasn't just optimism, though, Toby, because I think the point Dan is trying to make is that memorials in America very often have a turn, right? Because they they choose to represent something that very often in history, in hindsight, sucks. And even this kid is aware of how 9-11 was used to commit atrocities and to use as a pretense for a war. Even the kid is aware of that. And, you know, Dan confronts this guy with his selective memory. Like, why do you want to forget racism but remember 9-11? What did you think of that section? I found it to be very complicated, and I'm still kind of wrapping my mind around it. Hang on. We're getting to it. Are there racist people out there? Absolutely. But is it something in our society today that is prevalent and overwhelming? No. Steady. We are far beyond that. Quit talking about it. Let it go. What is it about 9-11 that makes you want to remember? And what is it about racism that makes you want to forget? <laughs> you know what I mean? That is an interesting contrast. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I mean, I think memorials are kind of propaganda, right? I mean, they're trying to control the way you think about something that's happened in the past. You know, 9-11 is tough because I, I think it's been sort of divorced from what, what actually happened to an extent and that there is this sort of mythology around our country coming together. And that's what that guy talks about who says there's not racism anymore and we should just get moved past it. But especially this idea there wasn't any racism on 9-12. I mean... There was more racism <laughs> on 9-12. So tell it to any Muslim, you know, I mean... Any brown person in America the next day, yeah. yes. So, yeah, no, I think it's a very complicated topic. I, I feel like I'm mostly with Dan when you take a look at starting on September 12th and afterwards. It's like, what, what was the effect 
of September 11th and, and not much good came out of it. You know, I mean, it's a lot of bad stuff domestically and a lot of bad stuff internationally. And so sort of memorializing it like beyond grieving for the people who passed and, 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 you know, celebrating the people who were sort of heroic. I think there's this other mythology about how it was America coming together in a way that I don't feel like is like super accurate Quickly, I just remember I just started working in Concord. So I was driving back and forth from the seacoast to Concord. And um, at the uh, Epsom Traffic Circle, there's a candy store that has a little marquee. And uh, where it's usually like fudge, four ninety nine a pound, or you know, Happy Labor Day, <laughs> or whatever, and they had put up on it. It, it said America, love it or get the hell out! Yep. Exclamation point. And I was like, okay. And so that's like that's for whatever reason that sticks out in my mind is sort of a pretty close post nine eleven thing, which I don't think jives with this mythology that's kind of grown up around it. So, Kevin, I have a question for you because of the four of us. You are the only person who was working as a journalist at the time who went to the towers after they fell right. to interview people on the ground. And Dan Taberski was also very close to the site, as we said, you know, had a friend who died in the towers. And it's very clear to me anyway, even though that Dan is not explicit about it in the podcast, I think that the, you know, coda in the final episode to me shows that he's obviously reporting this through the lens of the Dan Taberski-ness of looking, looking at our culture, but also through a lens of grief. Mm-hmm. Can you just talk a little bit about like how you feel about approaching a story like this? Because you're also, as a journalist, you're also a humorist in many ways. And that is a line, right? To, to approach a story this big and be yeah, somebody okay. who writes like that. And, you know, it's it's hard. Well, this is unique because if you'd asked me four years ago, if the guy who did that Richard Simmons thing... Oh, the guy who put a bunch of balloons on a cassette tape, you know, that he was going to be the guy who was going to get the interview with Eddie Gallagher, the Navy SEAL war criminal, and do a very introspective look at 9-11. I would have said, not that guy, right? <laughs> but the, the, the destroy, Bill, destroy guy? Yeah. You know, oh, of guy? course. <laughs> yeah. He sounds like he's going to be. A, you know, I just would not. There's a failure of imagination right there. But I can't imagine anyone else doing it now that I've heard it, right? Because he is Dan Taberski, and he's leaning into what his strengths are, which is to be a great listener, very easygoing, still willing to kind of laugh at the absurdity of the things that he talks about, gets people very comfortable, no matter what the subject, that he has the ability to craft a story in a way that other people can't do it. Rachel Maddow could not do this podcast in the same way. Neither could a Josh Dean or a Madeline Barron or Sarah Canning. Nobody could do it exactly like this. And this is fantastic. So if if you're wondering why, well, it's almost Columbus Day, and why would I still want to be listening to a 9-11 podcast? Because it's Dan Taberski, Hmm. right? And anything that he finds interesting he makes us think it's interesting. Hmm. So anything he wants, I, we've said it before. I'm not just like being a homer here, but it's like, okay, if anything he wants to talk about, I'll listen because he does it fantastic each time. 
So, I mean, I guess that's a good segue into our review of the podcast. Yeah. I think that's a little spoiler about how you feel. So let's do what we do. Let's let our listeners know, should they check out 912? It's available on all of the apps, but if you want to listen to it in full, you can go to Wondery Plus or Amazon Music via free trial, or you might even have that available to you if you're a certain kind of Amazon member. Laura Bricker, what do you think? Thumbs up or thumbs down for 912? Yeah, this is a thumbs up. Dan Taberski is just such a good storyteller that I pretty much would listen to him talk about anything because the way that he describes things and the expressions he uses to sort of convey, like he talked in this about, you know, that, oh, you got like the red Skittle instead of the yellow Skittle. But the way that he uses, and you know, these comparisons that we can all relate to, and he's so conversational, and yet he finds these super unique angles that you never would have thought of prior to his podcast. Like in this podcast, we have these guys on a ship in the middle of the ocean. And we also have, by the way, we didn't talk about this, the live free or die shout out. So, you know, I think this is a thumbs up. And um, it's hard every year to go through this sort of reminiscing period of where were you and what are you doing and what has changed. But I think this podcast does it in such a way that it's engaging and it's interesting and it's leaving you with some takeaway without leaving you feeling totally depressed when you're finished listening to it. Toby Ball, thumbs up or thumbs down for 912. So Dan Taberski's had to earn my love, I would say. <laughs> I had my problems with missing Richard Simmons. And then I thought the Y2K thing he did was sort of uneven. But I think since then, with the running from cops, and then the line, and then now this, I think he's sort of, I mean, it, it, the, the through line through all these seems to be taking a look at sort of the American character. It's like putting it under a certain aspects of the American character under a microscope in this kind of eclectic way. And I think that that is what he's really, really good at. And I'd like to think that I had the foresight back before to say, you know, he's really good, but he's maybe not looking at the things that I want him to look at or whatever, and that that will be better. But regardless, I think he's on like a tremendous sort of run between these three things. I think the things that he comes up with, the things that at least I end up thinking about when this was over is not stuff that is easy to sum up. And I don't think he spends much time trying to sum things up. I think he puts out a lot of stuff that builds an argument and that has something that's sometimes fairly profound to say about the way we think about things here. So, yeah, I mean, I, I just, you know, I, I, I kind of put this in a different category than most of the stuff that we do, even like the really, really excellent stuff, because I, I think he's after something a little bit different, and it makes me think about it a little bit different. But I, I thought this was, was good, and it's important, and I hope I hope people listen to it. So that's thumbs a thumbs up? up? Okay. <laughs> Kevin Flint. Yeah, by the way, Toby, I think Dan Taberski knew exactly how often you gave him a thumbs up and did not. <laughs> he was tweeting. That could be true. Um, yeah, I'm a big thumbs up. Uh, Dan Taberski is one of the few people who writes beautifully and then can read like he's not reading and deliver those beautiful lines like they're coming off the top of his head. He is just a unique talent, and I don't know, like this is the fifth podcast, and I've been big thumbs up for... All of them, I feel like I'm just fangirling when he comes out. I don't think it's possible for him to do anything poorly. Maybe someday he will, and I'll have to give him a thumb sideways. But just everything about what Tiburski does 
is thoroughly engaging and enjoyable. Everything sounds extemporaneous, so it's intimate, and he just sounds like he's a good hang, right? I hope he's vaxxed because I want to go take him out for a beer. Hmm, same. So here's the thing. Uh, of course, this is a huge thumbs up for me. That's a given, right? But here's the thing about this podcast that is so interesting to me. Even when I don't agree with a choice or I don't understand a choice, it's still a fucking interesting choice to me, yeah. right? Like, I'm like, why are we in this warehouse listening to this whole song, right? And I'm like, that is actually Dan Taberski acknowledging that he is also in a state of grief when he's making this podcast. To me, that's what that probably is. It made me think about, like, why did he do that, right? Mm. Uh, when he is... You know, talking to this man who wasn't able to start his business because of discrimination and policies that targeted Muslims. And he's sitting with this man who was a victim and he's basically like saying, could you have a bigger flag? Like, what is going on here? He's asking the question I would ask in that moment. Mm -hmm. He's able to bring irreverence to so many situations. And yeah, he is a great writer. He says great delivery. He's also a tremendous interviewer. And even the aesthetic choices like, I will say the scoring in this podcast is so moving. In moments, it sounds like the House of Cards theme. It has that driving political thriller sound. And at moments, it sounds like a mournful Salvation Army band, the sort of low French horns and baritones. Just the choices that were made editorially and aesthetically. Like every moment, even when I was like, I don't get it, maybe it's different than I would have chosen. It is just so thoughtful and thought provoking. And I laughed out loud and I like literally cried several points during this podcast. I It's just so joyful in the making of it and so thoughtful and so different from what I expected. And I, I'll tell you, every time I listen to one of Dan's podcasts, I don't know what to expect. And that's part of the joy of it, too. So, of course, 912, yet another huge thumbs up for me for this work from Dan Taberski. Thank you so much for making it, Dan. You're probably not listening to this, but if you are, thanks a lot. Disney Plus and Hulu are better together in the Disney bundle with new movies and series. On Disney Plus, experience the full Taylor Swift The Eras Tour, Taylor's version, with new main show performances and acoustic collection. On Hulu, follow the fantastical evolution of Bella Baxter, played by Emma Stone in the award-winning film Poor Things. All of these and more streaming this month. Get the Disney Bundle with Disney Plus and Hulu. Terms apply. See DisneyBundle.com for details. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. Auto Trader. Hey, it's me, your barista. You know how you come in almost every day for our cold foam coffee? Well, now there's an easy way to foam at home with new International Delight Cold Foam Creamer. And it's foaming delicious. New International Delight Cold Foam Creamer. Now in stores. It's foaming delicious. All right, Kevin, here we are in the business section. Business section. Play the music. <laughs> so I want to talk a little bit about what we're going to be doing in the after show today. Is that all right? Yeah. So I have been reading Laura Bricker's book. I'm not quite finished with it yet. And I have noticed that she has dropped some crumbs and some nods to people that I recognize perhaps as being inspired by real people. Mm -hmm. And uh, so she's a novelist now. Toby's a novelist. I like to have a little conversation about like... How you do that? How you put people you know, inspire people you know in your books, where you draw the line, and then how you have those conversations afterwards. So we're going to do that. 
And then I also want to ask Laura a little bit about a real-life celebrity Brat Pack chase she had in her town. Oh, somebody from the Brat Pack. Yes, huh? so we're going to be doing oh, yeah. that in the after show. We're um, also going to talk about our, uh, for those of us who are up to date on Only Murders in the Building. Yeah, just our quick impressions are. of the uh, episode four of that show. So, Kevin, what else have we got going on our Patreon right now? All right, well, for those of you who are interested, Laura Bricker is uh, having a book launch for her book, Dead on Deadline. Two different book launches. There's going to be the real-life one held on Wednesday the 15th in Exeter, New Hampshire. If you happen to be around, it's at the Word Barn. But for our listeners, the night before, there's going to be a virtual book launch party. So on the 14th, 7 p.m. for our patrons on uh, Patreon, you go to Crowdcast. Click on, you'll have an inter... This is it will be an interactive video with Laura. She, we're going to do some Laura Brickard trivia. She's going to be doing a reading... Uh, then afterwards, there'll be a, uh, a rebroadcast on Facebook so uh, everybody can uh, partake. All right. What else have we got going on, Kevin? Oh, there's a new episode out this week of These Are Their Stories. The episode is SVU Accredo. That's the one that's based on Nexium, hmm. the sex cult where women get their initials burned in their arms and stuff like that. Lucky them. Yeah. It's, uh, hey, and it, what, what can I say? It's a laugh a minute. Who's a guest in the episode? Erica Viaba. Oh, it's a really good one. Yeah, she's from the uh, podcast called That Aged Well. <laughs> Our guests on that show have been really, really good lately. We've got some good ones coming up, too. Wait, they get their the initials burned in their arms in this in the Law & Order? Yeah. Is Listen, that the, it's like, ripped well, from the headlines. It's not the actual headlines. Uh, <laughs> seems like we're missing the point on that. Okay, sorry. <laughs> yeah. It could have been worse, ladies. <laughs> could have been a lot worse. Yeah. All right, so Kevin, before we get back to our reviews, do we have any Patreon patron saints of the week this week? Our Patreon patron saints are Brioni Sheather and Jill Sackville. Bless you. Thank you very much for supporting us on Patreon, Brioni and Jill. And thanks everyone who does that. And don't forget to sign up for our newsletter. It's free. Go to crimewriterson.com to get that done. And you can find out everything that's going on every week and all that stuff. Kevin, does thus end the business section? Yeah, enough of this music. All right, fade that out. Moving on. When we quit saying, how do I get what I need? And the conversation started with, how do we help others make money? That's where the business started. That's where the growth came from. In 2013, husband and wife team Deanne Brady and Mark Stidham had gone from selling low-cost dresses from her car trunk to creating LuLaRoe, a multi-level marketing company which provided colorful leggings and other clothes to entrepreneurial women who'd sell them to eager buyers. When I started LuLaRoe, I couldn't even afford a $5 box of cereal. Four and a half years later, I was just able to buy my dream home. I had achieved the dream. I almost felt like a real housewife. My department alone was bringing them a million dollars a day. Easily. While the company earned billions and early adopting retailers collected huge bonuses, the money came not from consumers, but from the tens of thousands of women downline purchasing the inventory who broke even or even lost money on casual wear of dubious quality. Why is everything ripping? Why are these leggings wet? Why are they moldy? Why are they stinky? The whole house smelled like the dead fart leggings. Like it was so bad. The Amazon Prime documentary Lula Rich dives into what officials have called a huge pyramid scheme. It lets Brady and Stidham defend their company and leaves the accusations against Lula Rowe to attorneys, experts and many women 
women whose fortunes rose and fell based on where in the pyramid they found themselves. We are going to be talking about plot points for Lula Rich. So to remain spoiler free, go to the estimated time code in our show notes to hear our thumbs up or thumbs down review. Now, Laura Bricker, you have some connections to LuLaRoe. You have uh, some clothing. What are you wearing tonight? Uh, yeah, how, are, how did you get that shirt? I don't think you guys can see. This is the ugliest thing I ever got sucked into oh, buying from LuLaRoe. Oh, you wearing Ro. leggings. Oh, my God. So everyone I knew when this was happening was selling LuLaRoe or knew someone. Their cousin was selling LuLaRoe. I got invited to all these groups on Facebook, and they would be live every week, and you'd feel this pressure like, oh, my God, I need to buy something. So... Yeah, I got sucked in, and I knew a lot of people who got sucked in. And these leggings I'm wearing are prob- – and, and after I watched the, the show, I was like, oh, yeah. I looked at them like, like the seams don't match up, the patterns don't – these were the most freaking ugly things I've ever purchased mm. in my life. They have, like, old-fashioned telephones on them. <laughs> and so Fireman Ken and I were at this, like, really New Hampshire Northwoods kind of bar – I had a few glasses of wine and these women were on the side selling their Lulu Row leggings on the side of the bar. Well, they had like this little two old guys playing guitar on the other side. And I was like, oh, those poor women. They're like really trying hard to get rid of their leggings. And I was Literally. I went over. <laughs> and I, yeah, yeah. And I and I went over and I was like, oh, my God, like, I guess I'm going to buy these leggings. And they were all so ugly that the best ones I could find were these phone leggings that I have. I get home, I'm like, those are freaking ugly. So I literally only wear them when I go skiing under my ski pants when nobody can see them. Hmm. They have a pattern, looks like a... A dick? Yeah, or a bumblebee's crawling in your ass crack or something. (laughs) Uh, No, but I also have the mummy leggings for Halloween. I have the Santa Claus leggings for Christmas. I have the candy cane leggings for Christmas. On purpose? Yeah, and I have a dress for Easter that they sucked me in on. Because at one point they were pitching buy the dress and wear the leggings. And I was like, oh, my God. And I, I, it was it was like insane. I had to just like get out of the LuLaRoe loop. Laurie, I got to tell you, watching this documentary, I cannot tell you how fucking ugly I thought every single one of these garments was <laughs> on the screen. I didn't yeah. see a... I mean, Deanne looked fine because she was mixing a garment with like other nice clothes. Yeah. I don't know how this business did what they did with like literally even in the Facebook lives they'd hold up a shirt and I'd be like really like someone would want I mean I don't want to judge you know what it is they're very soft and when you feel them they're very very soft and comfortable but okay like right now I have them on I feel like I'm in a sweat lodge because the the fabric that they bought is so hot that like you put it on and you're like whoo wow all right it's like one of those those hot suits you put on To each her own. All right. So, Toby, I was very surprised that Deanne and Mark, in addition to all these very damning sources in the documentary, that they are also primary sources in the documentary telling their story earnestly. And the filmmakers give them equal time and and give them the opportunity to address, refute, rebut, and also damn themselves over and over and over again. Were you surprised that they were so present in this the whole time? The least surprising thing about the entire thing was at the end when they said they refused a second opportunity to talk to us. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I mean, I think they clearly think they're pretty smooth and smart and, and unassailable, and they're not. You know, we are storytellers. That's how the business grew. And so it's uh, exciting to have somebody here that's interested in, in uh, 
in the whole story and uh, an opportunity to share that. Every day I am astounded and full of gratitude for what this business became. I mean, it's hard. I think it's hard. Like if I was one of their friends, I would say, hey, you know, it's tough because they're juxtaposing you talking rationally with these people whose lives were destroyed. And so you look bad. But the reality is is that they're they're just freaking scammers. I mean that's 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 all it is. Like they they she made some frocks that apparently people liked and instead of just like making it into a business, they turned it into this gigantic scam. And you combine that with sort of this like if you didn't succeed, you know, you take your own responsibility kind of bullshit. And throw in some like weird Christian retrograde gender role stuff. It just seems like it's the worst of a whole bunch of like bad things rolled up together in this bizarre pyramid scheme about these clothes. I just, I don't really know what to say. I mean, I, I think it was a little bit like um, the gift, right? Yes. It was the same basic idea is that because we're selling something, that you're starting your business and it should be empowering and all this stuff. When in fact, it's just like sort of indentured servitude where you get, you know, you, you end up owing money and you have to sell enough stuff to make your money back. And it's just like this spiral of crap. So this compared to the Taberski thing is just like so clearly these people are, are awful. But Kevin, there was an opportunity here, right? So I worked retail for a long time mm-hmm. and we talked about this and you were asking me lots of questions about sort of like the line because... The way that retail works is that someone makes something and they, if I'm a retail store, so you make something and it costs you $5 to make, you then sell it to me for $10 so that you make, you know, twice your money. I then sell it for $20. So I then double my money. I I buy it for 10 and sell it for 20. If I don't sell it, I can't send it back to you. And hopefully I make up the margins on like stuff I have sold at full price over time or whatever. If you were running a boutique or if you were running. If I'm a retailer, period. But part of being a retailer. If you're running an Old Navy and you get Old Navy clothes. Correct. Are you assuming the financial risk for all the inventory that they send you? No, that is the difference. Because I am not a franchisee, I'm a retailer. But I am also, as a retailer, not responsible for getting other retailers. This is also true, yeah. To, so they're, they're like the, it seemed like there was an opportunity for a legitimate there business. There was an opportunity for a legitimate they, business. This doesn't, this doesn't take off like it, it does if people don't love shitty-looking leggings. There and was so, a moment where it could have been legitimate. Yeah. There really was. There was a moment where it could have been like, hey, you want to sell these? I'll give them to you for 10 bucks. You sell them for whatever you want. There actually was that moment, yeah. but clearly that was never the intention. That was obviously never the intention. No, and it you know they can't say that they didn't know what was going on because they have this Zoom conference call uh, where they're like, well, we're going to be restructuring all the bonus system and stuff and why. And the guy says, so we can't be a pyramid scheme anymore. <laughs> People can't say that we're a pyramid, pyramid scheme anymore. <laughs> yeah. How do we get away from being a pyramid scheme? Well, how about you don't be a pyramid scheme? <laughs> how, about just, how about that? Yeah, so it just seems like, yeah, there was an opportunity there for like a legitimate business, but- You'll never really know what the consumer demand was for these leggings that fall apart because the people that were actually buying it weren't consumers. All the purchasing was really being done by the retailers to stock up their inventory. Yeah. So I was a stay-at-home mother for a short period of time, and it didn't work out for me for a variety of reasons. (laughs) 
But I will be honest, one of the reasons it didn't work out for me was because of the MLM culture in my stay-at-home mother group. And I was vocal about the predatory nature, not just of the MLMs on my stay-at-home mother friends, but on what I felt was the predatory nature of my stay-at-home friends toward me on constantly trying to get me to buy the stuff. And I'm like, how much stuff can I possibly buy from each of you? Like, this is our whole life, like getting our kids together and buying stuff from each other. It just seems very circular and weird. And Laura, the documentary addresses this, that there is a target market for MLMs, which is white, educated. Basically, they kind of make the argument like bored women who are dying for some sort of community or shared experience. I would also argue that the unspoken thing in the LuLaRoe documentary, because this is a very unspoken thing in our culture, is that another target for this product was overweight women, because these clothes are very much designed with sort of like the one sizeness. And, you know, it's something the documentary doesn't talk about, but that I saw very plainly as sort of a lot of like size stuff going on. What do you think of this culture of MLMs that is targeting specifically women who make the choice to be at home with their kids? Like, does that gross you out the way it grosses me out? Yeah. And I've been sucked in so many times over the years. And I mean, I can't sucked tell you Sucked in how in what many- way? Well, because you feel obligated. Yes. Like you feel like you want to support people. So now I have like a couple sort of token things that I know. Oh, somebody's having a pampered chef party. Okay. They have a really good knife that I like, and they have this amazing whipped cream maker. I'll buy that and gift it to somebody. But there is this, you know, and I remember at one point, oh my gosh, you know, there's there's people in my feed on Facebook and, the, you know, and, and even now, and I feel bad because some of these people, I just like, you know, you can like block somebody for 30 days because their entire feed is like, come buy my weight loss product, come buy my whatever I'm selling, come set up a party. And then I went to so many parties. I went to a Mary Kay party. I went to- You um, held a Tupperware party during the lifetime of this podcast. Yep. I've held a pampered chef party. So, but you know, I understand it because I do understand. I mean, like you, Rebecca, there was a period of time where I was like, when when Will was little and I was like, you know what, I, and I was taking care of my grandmother. I'm like, I need to be home. I, I can't be full-time in an office. And there is something for those of us that don't necessarily like sitting still, like you feel like, oh no, I, I need to do something. I need to do something else because you always feel like you should be doing more when you're, I mean, I I don't know. I just think that's like a cultural thing for certain women. Like you feel like you should be doing more. And so you, you're like, oh, this this is great. I'll, I'll do this. And it's just, I don't know. I, I understand, but I understand how it feels like this is something that's going to give me something for me when I'm doing something for everybody else. Yeah. I'll be honest, too. People have a pampered chef thing like I'll buy a spoon just to be nice. And that is not I mean, I I feel like I still do it. And I I, I don't because I don't want to be a dick. And the fact that I'm doing that to not be a dick is why this works. And I hate that. Toby, one of the aspects of this that's so interesting, you mentioned the prosperity gospel part of it. And it's not really Christianity. It's this like very cult-like weird prosperity gospel version. Um, And in this case, I believe they're Mormons, right? In the LuLaRoe world. Um, They brought their whole extended family into this business, including this guy who was also a primary source in the documentary who was in his own way, a questionable source who ran these bananas events 
for all of these women who worked in this MLM. I remember we'd fly in a private jet and the pilots would be like, who are these guys? I'm not qualified to run a marketing department for a million dollar company, let alone a billion dollar company. You know, it was kind of crazy. What did you think about just the scene in these events? You know, I've never actually been involved in anything that would have a scene quite like this, where, I mean, this the scenes they show of this guy, it's like he dresses up and one thing is a rapper with like a big fake gold chain and he's pretending to rap. And I don't know if like there's one that's sort of fiddler on the roofie. I can't remember exactly. I mean, he clearly he's like a musical theater guy and this is his outlet. It's doing these LuLaRoe convention things. But it's one of those things where it's like, let's get people up and dancing and woohoo and making up raps about LuLaRoe. And I'm like watching it and I'm just like, just fucking run. Just turn around (laughs) and run. Like this is not a good sign. He was the man, Toby. He was like having sex with all of them. I mean, it was You think he was? Was he really having sex with all of them? Don't you think? I don't know. He was like, I don't want to talk about that. I'm not answering that. Uh, But what if this is the only fun you can have? What if like there's nothing going on in your community and then you get to go to a place and hang out and see Kelly Clarkson? Like, do you understand the appeal of that on some level? I guess. I mean, sure. <laughs> I, I, but I, I mean, it's just, it's, it's bizarre that you're in a business and that this is somehow part of it. And by the way, like it's sort of an aside, the fact that they ruined Kelly Clarkson for that nice little guy who worked in oh, there. Oh, poor uh, Daryl. Yeah. <laughs> Darryl, that nice that's, little guy. <laughs> that's brutal. Honestly, to this day, I will not listen to Kelly Clarkson at all. I am full on boycott, which is sad because I love Kelly Clarkson as a singer. I love that duet with Jason Aldean, uh, Don't You Want to Stay. That's one of my all-time favorite songs, and I can't listen to it anymore because of her. At first, you're like, oh, my God, this guy sucks. Like, I can't believe he's doing this. And then you get some sympathy for him because he is sort of like, yeah, well, it was it was a scam. Like, he seems like he's being honest. But then when one other woman got, like, kind of kicked out of Lulu Row, he tries to, like, get her in on some marijuana farm scam that turns out to like be a complete scam too. I'm like, my God, dude, just like, just like get a job. Like, yeah, exactly. Like just join a community theater or something. Like that's clearly what you want to do. Just do it. Um, I was really curious about this idea. I mean, there were all these uh, weird, extremely sexist gender role things. Right. And mm. by the way, the most genius couple in this whole thing. It was, I just, as an aside, the smartest thing this documentary did was not telling you who was still in and who was out, except for the little chirons that said like former and current. But I wasn't really clear who was still in and who was out until the very end. Mm-hmm. But that couple who had been in where she had the husband do all the selling for her, mwah, genius, by the way. Really good way to sell a ton of shit. I don't think so. But I'm that's saying cause... that's what I would do if I were selling Lularo. I'd have, <laughs> have you get on it. camera. That's why I don't think it's 100%. But what did you think of this idea? Because it was obviously super sexist. It was all this whole thing about like, get on your knees for five minutes a day ladies and your husband will be what happy the fuck that made me seriously rage, yeah me too but what do you think of this idea that the whole idea here is to be like part of the business and part of the misogyny part was to quote retire your husband make him dependent on you so that there could be a cycle of misogyny like it's weird you right? asking me to comment on that is like when in the documentary they asked them to comment about women's empowerment and he interrupts her <laughs> What inspired the empowerment of women for you? Can, can I jump in there and then you yeah, can talk? Yeah. 
because yeah yeah I I no I have something <laughs> no I, I watched I watched my wife shatter glass ceilings I mean there was no she was able to make the money she was willing to go out and make thing I, did, and, I shattered a ceiling but I mean it's clear that they're taking some very antiquated ideas about men and women and their uh, abilities in the workplace and in the home. But it really is, I mean, kind of ingenious here because the real target for this company, their target audience are not people who like leggings and whatnot. It's these people who can be salespeople, who are stay-at-home mothers or are underemployed in some way, and they have a desire to make more money, to be more entrepreneurial, to make something more of their free time. And so, woof, this is like the perfect thing for them, especially if they, you know, once a year go to a convention where they rent out fucking Angels Stadium and Katy Perry sings firework to them. You're like, well, we're in the middle of something big here. Yeah. And if I just keep working it a little harder, yada, yada, I don't think it's the bug. I think it's the the feature of right. the of the of the scam. I just want to say Mario Lopez, Katy Perry, Kelly Clarkson, that is a gig, man. They have an agent, they get booked for a gig, they do the gig. You know, they don't fucking know. <laughs> is, they don't. It's in a real stadium. Like they don't know, right? I mean, I don't think that they know they're participating in a scam. Um Laura, I have a question for you before we do our review about the business model. Um this is a company that they grew before they had the actual infrastructure to support that growth, which, you know, explains the quality control. We saw that designer who was forced to pump out 100 designs a day, and she talked about how that worked. It was a real factory. Uh, We heard that the bonus structure has been cut. There have been all these class action lawsuits. Why do you think women are still on board and still working and still selling LuLaRoe today? Your guess is as good as mine, Rebecca. I have to say, listening to the setup of this company, watching this ridiculous like Google Doc that they had for all the thousands of people that were entering <laughs> information. <laughs> and they're like, oh, we hired Jojo. Like he's good at Excel or something. I'm like, oh, okay. Um, but, y- you know. I'm just going to say something. We have a podcast on which four people work. And I have QuickBooks, man. I'm just saying. We do yeah. not use Google Docs for this shit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We do for the script, but we're not, it's not a billion dollar business. <laughs> $1.3 billion yeah. business, Kevin. But, you know, coming out of this, it's like whenever we watch a show, like when we hear about Bikram and we're like, oh my God, that guy's so horrible. And then he like gets on a plane and flies off and you're like, oh, look, now he has like new followers in like France or wherever it is or South America. And I'm like, what the hell? Do people like not follow the news and know that this is like bad? So I, I don't know. I, I, I am a little bit mystified, but you know, I think it sounds like they've made some changes, but I just think those two people, Deanne and Mark are like freaking despicable. I just, I wanted to punch them a lot. And the fact that they're still in charge and still mentoring people in this business is absurd to me. I, I'll be curious and also accepting no responsibility for any of this, especially when we see their depositions, the way that they're answering, like they know, they know what they did. So I'll be curious, um, you know, if there's aftermath from this, but I will say the last couple LuLuRoe leggings I got were shit. So they should just quit <laughs> while they're ahead. Stop buying them, Laura Bricker. You're being an enabler. Toby Ball, uh, yes or no real quick, good or bad look to bring a big gulp to a deposition in a multi-million dollar lawsuit? 
Uh, it's it's a good look. It shows that it shows them that <laughs> yeah. you know that you're you're innocent, so you've got no worries. <laughs> All right, let's do what we do. Let's let our listeners Ladder of steel. <laughs> let's let our listeners know. Should they check out Lula Rich? It's a new four part documentary on Prime. Laura Bricker, what do you think? Thumbs up or thumbs down for Lula Rich? Yeah, I think this is a thumbs up because you know I, a, lot, a lot of people in my social circle got sucked into the Lulu Row legging period of time, like that was like a phase in history, and I, so we can relate to this. But it's told in such a way that we hear from the people at the head of the company who are still totally absolving themselves of doing anything that was wrong. But it's told in such a way it's rage walking material. Number one, very enlightening, but it's it's entertaining, and you know it's it's told in a way where you really come away understanding the absurdity of multi level marketing and how these three people at the top that were the first people to sign on to this company made like two million dollars a year or some absurd thing in bonuses. It's it's interesting. I, mean, I thought it was very interesting. Toya Ball, what do you think? Thumbs up or thumbs down for Lula Rich? It's a little bit like taking like a big misogynist, amoral, scamming fish, sticking it in a small barrel and just hammering it with like an aluminum baseball bat. I mean, it's these people are so unsympathetic. They make a good case against them. They show lives that were ruined. I liked it. I mean, I, I give it. I give it. A, I give it a thumbs up. I mean, it's not. It's not super nuanced. There were some questions I had at the end, like. Did the clothes really go down in quality? Like they start talking about how they they're not as good as they used to be, and that seemed like that was like part of the story, but they don't really give you much of a sense of that other than they were just leaving stuff out in the rain. Um, they smelled. They didn't smell good. <laughs> Stinky leggings. So yeah, thumbs up. It's good. Kevin Flynn. I'm a thumbs up. Uh, some things about this, like you get 80% of the story in the first five minutes. They do like this quick montage. It takes you through what you're going to see over the next four episodes, but it doesn't feel like a spoiler in any way. It feels more like an appetizer, like what's to come. So I'm like, okay, I'm on it now. And the way they deal with uh, Mark and Deanne, they don't really push back. The documentarians don't push back on their assertions. They let everybody else do that. Sometimes I feel like I'm thinking specifically of Pray Away, where the documentarians just stand too far back and let them go unchallenged. But I think they do a great job. It keeps them comfortable in talking and talking and talking until they sort of hang themselves. But, you know, I thought that that was a great way of doing that. And, like, I just have to put out there that every great cult has a great video library. They love videoing themselves, which is perfect <laughs> for the eventual documentary that comes up. Thank you for doing that for us. Yeah, uh, Lulu Rich is uh, a very good documentary, so I give it a thumbs up. Can we just talk about the fact that we didn't talk about the fact that two of Mark and Deanne's kids got married to each other? Ugh, that was so weird. <laughs> okay, um, so yeah, I loved this documentary. I thought it was bright. I thought it was well told. I thought it tackled a bunch of issues that a less well-made documentary wouldn't. It really did talk about the predatory nature of MLM specifically toward a specific demographic, how it's exclusionary, how it's really all about whiteness in so many ways. And they had people of color talking about that in a way that was nuanced and smart. Uh, I love that they included people who were still in, people who were out. They did a very good job deconstructing the how and whens of how it hit and then how it fell apart. I don't know. It just had a lot of energy and it was a lot of fun to watch. In addition to being informative, it had some fantastic villains and some also some people that were 
kind of heroic in a weird, dark way. I don't know. I really loved it. I would really suggest checking out Lula Rich on Prime. Disney Plus and Hulu are better together in the Disney Bundle with new movies and series. On Disney Plus, experience the full Taylor Swift The Eras Tour, Taylor's version, with new main show performances and acoustic collection. On Hulu, follow the fantastical evolution of Bella Baxter, played by Emma Stone in the award-winning film Poor Things. All of these and more streaming this month. Get the Disney Bundle with Disney Plus and Hulu. Terms apply. See DisneyBundle.com for details. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. Auto Trader. Psst. Hey, it's me, your barista. So you know how you come in almost every day for our cold foam coffee? Yeah, well, I might be putting myself out of a job by telling you this, but now there's an easy way to foam at home with new International Delight Cold Foam Creamer. With three new foaming flavors, French vanilla, sweet and creamy, and caramel macchiato, who could blame you if you stopped coming in altogether? Yeah, it's that foaming delicious. You're welcome. New International Delight Cold Foam Creamer, now in stores. It's foaming delicious. Now it's time for my favorite part of the podcast, a little something I like to call the crime Crime of of the week. week. There was much disappointment and confusion for some planning council applicants in the English borough of Swale. The owners of the Happy Pants Ranch received a notice saying their permit was refused because, quote, your proposal is whack. It further stated, no mate, proper whack. It seems a vendor had been testing new software for the council that accidentally went live. It mixed actual applicants with dummy decision notices. Among other reasons given included, quote, no, quote, just don't. And a demolition was approved with a notation, quote, incy wincy spider. A note on another application asked, quote, why am I the chosen one? Council members don't find the humor in it. They say it will cost 8,000 pounds to sort out and will delay many project applications. Technically, the decisions are binding, so they're asking a judge to quash the notices so they can start over. Panel, if a proposal is whack, a regulator ought to be able to say so. Yes. What might be another determination by this planning board? Laura Bricker, what do you think? Um, I'm just going to let it rip. Fuck no. Yeah, all right. Toby Ball, what do you think another determination by this planning board might be? Uh, I'm not too hip with the the British lingo, but I think in like 1997, they probably would have said, this plan is fit. (laughs) What about you, Kevin? I'd say it's not just whack, it's wickety whack. Oh, all right. All right. So we should probably end the show on that note. Before we do, Laura Bricker, do we have a cat of the week this week? (laughs) Oh, you guys. Hold on. We have something brand new. And this was brought to my attention by Amy Fowler Janes, Wally the Walrus. Wally the Walrus has been given a floating couch to stop him from sinking any more boats. Oh, yeah. I saw this. The Arctic Walrus has caused thousands of pounds of damage after relaxing. And this is from National World. I've never heard of National World. Series of small boats off West Cork, a place familiar to us in Ireland. He has sunk at least two so far. So the seal rescue people got an unused like pontoon boat and they brought it out there to try to encourage him to climb up on that. And if you go online and look up Wally the Walrus, there are all sorts of really fun pictures of him. He just climbs onto boats and then just like- He's trying to get in because he's tired. 
He's like and a he's, swimmer trying to get out of the water. He's humongous. Yeah. And he's just like the whole boat. Like there's this one boat that looks like, you know, like a normal kind of little fishing boat. And the thing is like tipped to the side. Wow. <laughs> Did you see it, Toby? Yeah, I, I saw that video. <laughs> it's crazy. Wally the Walrus is the cat of the week. All right, Laura Bricker, folks want to reach out to you to nominate wildlife or domestic life to be your cat of the week. How can they reach you? Perhaps on Twitter. They can find me at Laura Bricker. And of course, you can also email us at crimewriterson at gmail.com, which is how we get most of our submissions. Toby Ball, folks want to reach out to you on Twitter. How can they find you there? Uh, I'm just going to I'm going to try this again. If Carmelo Anthony wants to follow me on Twitter, <laughs> uh, it's at Toby Ball NH. I'll report back next week. Kevin Flynn. Uh, you can find me at Kevin P. Flynn, and your pickleball court is whack. <laughs> That's right. And if you want to follow me on Twitter or Instagram, you can find me at Reb Lavoy. You can also follow the show on Twitter at Crime Writers On, and I encourage you to join our amazing community in our official Crime Writers On Facebook discussion group. You can support the show at patreon.com slash partners in crime media. You'll get the Crime Writers on After Show, Married with Podcast, Laura Bricker's Leave it to Bricker Podcast, and Toby Ball's Deep Dive Book Club Podcast. Our theme song was composed and performed by Ty Gibbons. Our line editor is the very handsome Olivia Burdett. The executive producer of this program is Kevin Flynn. This show was recorded in the yoga loft above the bodega in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi studio, otherwise known as Studio C, the closet in our New Hampshire basement where we relax in our leggings with graphics of hot dogs unfortunately placed on our crotches on behalf of all the crime writers thanks so much for listening we will catch you later welcome to the gun show people (laughs) oh my god tobes (laughs) i'm sorry we're objectifying you immediately it's okay dan chartrand is a little upset that i've been objectifying him about his hair (laughs) Listen, he's a man. He can take it. He's like, what? Did you mean like my hair? Because I didn't cut it during COVID. I said, no, you have like a really good head of hair, Dan. Wow. He's like, oh, okay. (laughs) He can take it. Toby, can you hear us? Yep. (laughs) Toby, I'm not objectifying your hair. Nobody would. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader, like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.